Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, Wire Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Scaria. I'm joined by Louis Abood. Louis, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here as always. Thank you. Thank you. And today we have Tim from Staked. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's get right into it. Let's talk about your background and how that got you interested in the crypto space and how that became Staked, the company. Sure. Uh, so I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years. I did 10 years helping other teams build businesses. So come in kind of pre-product, help build the business, grow it and, and successfully exit it. And then the last 10, I've done that for myself. Been all across consumer internet, ad technology, mobile gaming, always looking for businesses where you could use software to help automate decisioning. And uh, that's kind of been the common thread of, of my technology background and, and started looking at crypto two or three years ago. I was looking at all the different projects where VCs were spending time and money and everything had staking at the heart of it, which was sort of what got me started on, on this current chapter. Yeah, really interesting that you had a, the Wall Street background and then went right into entrepreneurship. I actually don't think I see that uh, all too often. What made you take that leap from a relatively, you know, Wall Street may seem pretty crazy, but it's actually a, a lot of conservative people tend to pursue that career path, right? How did you go from such a conservative career path to something much more risk-seeking? So I, I started on Wall Street. I had studied computer science at school. The easy path from coming out of Yale at the time was to consulting or investment banking. And so I ended up on the debt derivatives desk at JP Morgan and realized very quickly that exactly what you mentioned, which is the risk-taking culture and the way rewards are, are distributed didn't really fit my personality, which was high risk. And so I left that environment and went to join as employee number six of a early startup that was building, effectively building a search competitor and found that that was the lifestyle for me and, and never looked back from there. But I did spend all that time uh, on the debt derivatives desk, kind of understanding what happens and then the whole slew of financial products that you get out of an interest rate. And so when I saw staking and looked at it as, a, as kind of the base layer yield generating asset for crypto, it set off a light bulb that said, this is actually going to be a really interesting space and I want to do something in it. So as a computer science graduate in the uh, fixed income space, were you writing like trading algorithms and things like that? Or? No, I was largely glued to a uh, Excel model, building okay. big models and, and spent almost all my time trying to explain that to both my bosses and or the clients who were then looking at you know specific financial uh, instruments they, they could create or, or take part in. So does that pique your interest in, I mean, it's slightly off topic, but in building different, fi I mean, Ray sort of is a financial product of sorts, right? It definitely um, is. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I want to, I, I think that the reason that job attracted me 20 years ago is exactly the same reason that I want to spend time building Ray is that, you know, there are all these cool things you can do with programmable money that DeFi allows you to unlock. And that's what I wanted to be doing at JP Morgan. Uh, instead of kind of slinging PowerPoint and, and Excel documents around. And so now we're actually able to build that stuff and, and that's fun. And what was the time frame that you were on the debt derivatives desk? I graduated college in 1997. So I was there for about a year and a half. So okay. a long time ago, but uh, you sort of had 
a slew of products that have, that have even been built since yeah. then that's come out. That was sort of the beginning of the renaissance for structured finance, right? Yep. So a uh, very interesting time to be at JP. So as you're in the crypto market now and you're seeing interest rates starting to become very much center point, right? There's so many different savings accounts, plays that are in coming to market and DeFi. Staking, of course, has an interest rate behind it. Where do you think this is all headed in terms of the financial products that can come next that are based off of these interest rates? Sure. Uh, well, I think you probably see a steady march towards replicating a lot of the things that have worked well in the traditional financial system, but, but rebuilt for a crypto native environment. So, you know, we think about uh, when you when you look at the fixed income market just to start, you generally have a base rate, which can be maybe a government bond rate or something like LIBOR. Uh, and then other fixed income style activities get priced as a spread to that rate. And so I think, you know, part of what we see is the base rate is probably going to look a whole lot like the staking yields. And you would then are going to see the market evolve to get priced as spreads to those staking yields relative to the risk. And in the case of staking, you know, effectively your counterparty is the protocol itself. And then you've got other things that are going to be out on the risk spectrum. Today, most of those things have very low risk and therefore, you know, I think spreads are probably going to be tighter. And I think you're probably going to see people look to take a lot of different risk positions that get expressed and, and those will get kind of priced at a spread to a staking yield in a, in a more explicit fashion than I think is happening today. So just to throw a spanner in the works, what would you consider the risk-free rate to be for That's like a proof of work client like Bitcoin? Oh, that's a great question. So I think you probably would get that from some forward. You you basically would look at at buying thirty days forward and and shorting spot. I think that's probably the closest analog. I don't think you necessarily can take like okay, we've got four percent issuance to miners, and that is a staking yield. So I'm not sure the analogies there. Uh, and and by the way, those forward yield markets are. are crazy. They're not like a staking or an interest rate. They bounce around all the time. So I'm not even sure there is a risk-free rate in Bitcoin, which which I think presents challenges. Very interesting. So let's get into staked more uh, specifically. What did stake look like originally when it was you and just the, uh, I, I believe, two other founders, right? Right. There are three co-founders of the company. Mm-hmm. Me, Jonathan Marcus, who I'd worked with in the past and, and was pretty actively involved in, in crypto at the time, and Seth Reiney, who is our CTO. Uh, he and I went to Yale together a long time ago, and he'd been doing building large-scaled tech infrastructure for, for a variety of financial services companies and ad tech companies. Mm-hmm. And you guys founded Stig just earlier this year? Yeah, earlier in 2018. So the company is about 18 months old. Okay. And so I called Jonathan and I said staking rates look like an interest rate. All these cool financial products are going to get built. Let's go build them. And he said, well, that's great. But number one, none of these projects have launched. And number two, to actually collect the staking yields, you have to run infrastructure. And so we realized that, you know, investors were probably not going to want to run infrastructure. And they were probably going to want to know what's the staking yield I can earn and how do I ensure that I get it securely and reliably. And so that's kind of what what we got started with on Staked was providing that infrastructure and helping investors earn a reliable yield relative to the the staking rewards that were available. 
And so from a higher level, what does that infrastructure look like? I mean, Grants is probably a little bit different between different networks, but... Yeah, it, it, it looks, you know, it's different in every network, but it looks similar in that we perform the work of nodes that validate transactions. And so we are typically, we have a preferred configuration where we have one set of servers that peer with the network at a whole. And then in a, in a much more secure environment, the nodes that are actually proposing or validating the blocks that, you know, represent the new blocks that get created on the chain. And so we do that across today, 16 proof of stake networks. And there's probably another 10 that will launch in the next six months where we, we run nodes on behalf of, of principally institutional investors. And so what are the, the metrics that you sort of primarily judge yourself and other stakers by? We have to be up 100% of the time. And we have to be rock solid on security. I mean, those are the those are the two things that, you know, if we fail at that, we lose our jobs. And I think from there, there are a set of services that professional investors expect, whether that's mm-hmm. reporting, because these are, are widely viewed as potentially taxable. And so investors need to understand how much did I earn so that they can report it appropriately. And a set of APIs that allow both investors to build on top of our infrastructure but also other staking companies have built on top of our infrastructure. Crypto custodians, wallets, and exchanges can just tap into uh, a base layer of tools so they don't actually have to run nodes on 16 different networks. They can just tap into it and give those yields to their customers. So let me see if I got this right. Your your mission is to make these passive opportunities in crypto, whether it's uh, through staking proof of stake networks, forming some sort of security function, or we'll get into DeFi in a, a little bit and why you think that's attractive, these DeFi opportunities, and just making that very easy, right? I think a, a, an easy to generate yield yeah. button is exactly what we're trying to do. Well, what does the customer have to show up with to make it that easy? There's two answers to that. The first is it's too hard today to actually do this. So you need to sign an on-chain transaction. So wherever your your assets are custodied, we never take custody of assets. You keep them either on an exchange, on a ledger, or with a third-party custodian. And then you're going to sign a transaction that says, I want this address to be my validator. We never take access to the funds, but signing that transaction is something you need to get people comfortable with give them the details so they can do it. Today, we on-site integrate with people's ledgers so it comes up directly in MetaMask on on a variety of crypto assets. We'll do that across everything that we do. And so do you run your servers on public cloud infrastructure or is it all? Everything we run is generally on cloud. We have some on-premise stuff. We use Kubernetes, which allows us to deploy containers for all these nodes across multiple cloud providers and an on-premise setup so that if a cloud provider were either non-crypto friendly or it goes down, we can be up in 10 minutes in another environment uh, without any interruption of service. So, so you use the primary service provider is public cloud, but you have on-premises. Of that's right. There's backup. Yeah. Uh, it, for using your on-premise uh, infrastructure, does that come at some sort of premium to the customer? Like, Do they have to pay for that? Generally, generally, no. Generally, we just provision our services in a way where you're just going to earn a yield on top of the crypto that you already hold. We try to make the barrier to entry as low as possible to get as much activation as we can because uh, we, we believe the growth in this category is going to far exceed the sort of you know nickel and diming people over individual pieces of infrastructure. 
Yeah, out of curiosity, you said you have 16 different proof of stake coins available on your platform. All of these different networks are on some spectrum of decentralization. I I suppose in terms of the infrastructure you need to run a node of those coins, uh, which ones require more high performance computing infrastructure to actually uh, run a node? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there are typically three legs of, of decisions that networks make choices around. Number one is performance. So if you want two second block times or 50 millisecond block times, you need to have a very performant network because there's overhead in the communication among validators. So you generally aren't can't have a huge number of them. And number two, if a set of those validators goes down or is unavailable, it becomes a problem. So you've got kind of performance on one spectrum, security on another, and decentralization is probably the third piece of that. So you have you have networks like Tezos, which are which are actually very decentralized, but have one to two minute block times because they're sort of designed to have a validator set that can you can run on your own home computer and it when it misses a block, it just delays the block for another 30 seconds. And then there are places like Cosmos or Solana, who are optimizing for getting blocks confirmed very quickly. And in that case, you need a much smaller validator set, or at least you need to know that your validator set is is highly performant. It's always going to be up Mm -hmm. and things like that. So uh, with your experience in running validators with networks that have a whole bunch of different properties, has that kind of changed your view on what makes sense and what doesn't? Sure, I, I've got a, I've got a take on it. I mean, yeah. I think I think there's a lot to actually unpack there. You know, I think one of the dynamics that Chris Berniski at, at Placeholder was talking about was that when you have networks that actually have a lot of blocks, it creates a lot of space and not a lot of fee competition. So number one has been, you know, for networks that are going to make the transition to a fee only system. Uh, having a lot of blocks is actually a challenge and it it creates a, a dynamic that I never thought about before I saw how that works. The second is I, I believe you have to have a validator class that can actually run businesses uh, successfully to have a reasonably decentralized network that's also performant. And so I think if you if you want fast block times, which is kind of part of every scalability solution uh, generally, You've got to have people who can actually do this professionally. And so I think the idea that this can sort of be run by anybody who just spins up a node starts to fall down when you have real performance and security questions. Yeah. So I, I think those are two things that probably 18 months ago I wouldn't have concluded, but have definitely changed over time. And on the first point, I mean, there's a second kicker to that, right? Because if you have fast block times... Um, a lot of block space and low fees, you probably also have higher operating costs because you Definitely. Know, you've yeah. got higher throughput on the chain. So what kind of delta do you see in like, if you take a, a low throughput, slow block time network and compare that to the infrastructure requirements and ongoing operating costs of something with much faster block times, in terms of dollar spend, like how different is that from your perspective? So we are not looking at this. I mean, in general, the, one of the big benefits of proof of stake is it's not enormously resource expensive. Yeah. So uh, we generally over-provision our nodes to make sure that we're a high performer on the network. And we're not looking to sort of minimize the footprint today because that component of our operating costs just isn't, isn't enormous. 
But yeah, you can run on on networks that are slow and, and don't have high end requirements. You can generally run things on cheaper servers. Mm -hmm. It's nowhere near as meaningful as, for example, some networks that are about to launch where they use GPUs and other kind of uh, specialized hardware, maybe with a secure enclave or things like that. Those start to get much more expensive, particularly if you're trying to use a cloud provider. Like so at Solana? Or Solana is, yeah. is a great example. Enigma is another one that, that is looking to use secure enclaves to perform you know, privacy-protected computation. Mm. Those things have real operating costs associated with them. You know, we also operate services that perform work on these networks. So things like LivePeer, where we act as a transcoder. And really, you want to be running that on a, on a GPU rather than a CPU, because otherwise, it's, it's very resource expensive. I think Filecoin will be similar in that it, it requires us to provision lots of server space for storage. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, one of my kind of general questions that I've always had on the kind of staking as a service model is that proof of work is relatively self-commoditizing, right? But there are still barriers to entry. You have to spend a lot on CapEx to get the equipment. You probably can't be located anywhere in the world because the electricity price is a massive variable to your profitability. But staking seems like even more self-commoditizing. The barriers to entry are lower, although there's, there's still some technical requirements and, and so on. And of course, all of these different validators like yourself compete on the, the fees that they take, right? You know, some validators might charge a 10% commission, 15%, 20%, and so forth. So, you know, with all that kind of put together in my mind, I kind of question whether there'll ever be any margin in running validators as a business for other people because it should be a market with perfect competition. So what's kind of your view on that and how you see things evolving kind of into the longer term as things become more mature? Sure. Yeah, I think it's a natural question. I think these networks are not going to be successful if it evolves to the point where the only people who can profitably run validators are Binance and Coinbase. And so I think there's some consideration for you need to have a professional validator set that's out there that can actually maintain a, a well-decentralized network. I do think you're going to see pricing pressure mm. and that, you know, this is ultimately not a business with huge entry barriers. And so ultimately, I think we've, we've always viewed this as kind of potentially robbing gas stations on the way to the perfect crime and that it's a necessary component of infrastructure, but it may not be the the thing you hang your hat on long term that's going to drive real margin for you. Yeah. And so do you see much sort of scale and resource utilization benefits from running a whole bunch of different networks oh, at once? Of course. Right. Yeah. I think I think you get to invest in both your core infrastructure, yeah. which makes sure that you're up all the time and you're highly reliable. And it can allow us to sit across multiple cloud providers. You know, you get things like reporting pipelines so that once you've done reporting once, it's a lot easier to support a, a whole bunch of different proof of stake assets. Mm. So I, I do think there are probably more returns to or, or barriers to people getting started than they think, mm. particularly if you're servicing investors who, who care about these things and have to file taxes and, and have to deal with things. So we focus on an institutional customer who needs that to happen yeah. and probably is less sensitive to an extra point in savings that they could have if, if they have to go out and, and reassemble all the reports from seven different providers and find two guys in a server everywhere to do it a little bit cheaper. 
And presumably, like once you get everything set up and you've got your team set up, there should be good operating leverage in the business as more capital comes in or simply the price of the assets go up. Right? Absolutely. I yeah. mean, that's the that's the core of the business. You mm-hmm. you have a bunch of them. We've, we've got a team uh, that today can put, support 16 chains. Yeah. We could easily support 100. And that team doesn't really have to grow yeah. materially. We know exactly what we're doing. Uh, and, and you also get a bunch of crypto native software developers who then want to go off and build other stuff that is adjacent to it and can service our customers and help them earn more yield in different ways. So if you look at the way things have evolved on, I think, you know, Cosmos has been live. I think it's probably one of the older chains that you guys are dealing with. Would that be fair? Uh, yes. I, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, in that, it's in that bucket. And so they, I, I noticed that there was some discussion just on Twitter around the fee pressure amongst validators there. Yep. Um, but then I was just having a look at it before and it still seems like fees are relatively high. Did that kind of go through a cycle and then come well, back up Well, again? It's, a, it's a very unique situation. So yeah. it was in Cosmos specifically. I would say a general statement is rather than going down, I would say fees have been going up. Right. If you look at things like Tezos, which launched more than a year ago, if you look at a blended average cost, they're actually fees are going up versus down. Because I think there's a fair bit of people who are realizing this is not an easy business where you just spin up two servers and you make a million bucks a year. In Cosmos specifically, what you had was an employee for, uh, I think the company, the official Cosmos name is all in bits. And you had an employee who was running a zero cost validator. And so some of the, some of the discussion was, geez, you've got this guy who's getting paid by Cosmos to run a what's effectively a subsidized service by yeah. Cosmos. I think that drove a lot of the conversation. And I think some of that, you know, money did not money he he ultimately got a lot of delegations for that and then elected to raise the price cuz cuz I think there were some perception issues there. And is that so I mean you talked about uh like reporting capability and I guess, you know, uptime is also a very important metric, but are there other kind of products or services that you can provide outside of that to kind of build the the premium product that can maintain higher fees? Sure, and we think about that at all times. Yeah. I mean, I think the I think the key for us is how do you earn yield on crypto more broadly rather than how do you kind of add to your staking service necessarily because right. I actually think our north star for running the company is if if you are able to deliver a higher yield for a customer than elsewhere, then it's not really a story about fees. It's about what's my net yield. And that's why we push into things that actually we think can improve the net yield actually beyond our service fee. And by working with us, you actually have a negative service fee, right? And you, you can actually earn yield that's higher than than what we're paying ourselves. Yeah. What I'm understanding from this conversation is that the business itself, since the barriers to entry might be somewhat low, I guess, it's tougher to have pricing power. It could be tougher to capture long-term value if a lot of that value is going to flow down to the customer. But what you're trying to do is bundle the staking services with other products so that you can offer a differentiated product to your customer base. And I think we're, what we're getting at is really your uh, DeFi vision, right? Which I think is very differentiated from the other staking providers. What motivated you to take a closer look at DeFi? Is it, uh, is it really a business model decision or something you just personally get excited I, I, about? I mean, I... I think it's, I think it's, I've always found it kind of crazy that people classify DeFi and staking as like these two different animals, because to me, 
they look exactly the same. You have a protocol level interaction with where you're basically interacting with a smart contract that pays you a yield over time. One of whom has a, a counterparty that is the protocol and one of whom is, is maybe it's compound where you've got kind of a money markets thing. But from our perspective, they've always looked exactly the same, which is, this is just a way I can put my idle crypto to use. And people love earning more crypto just by sort of, you know, they've made a, they've made a long-term bet. So as we looked at Ethereum, which is the largest staking opportunity out there, what we saw was people were going to have to make a decision of, should I put my assets into compound or DYDX or staking? And if you, if you fast forward on that, you're always going to want to make that decision. And we wanted to facilitate that in a really easy way. So I think that's what drove us towards getting into staking and, and the DeFi stuff. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about your uh, first product in the DeFi space, uh, which has been dubbed Ray. What is it? How does it work? What's your, sure. what's your goal here? Yeah, so the product is called Ray. It's an acronym for Robo Advisor for Yield. And general idea is you deposit assets into the, the Ray smart contract that automatically monitors a set of yield generating opportunities that you've chosen. Today, it supports Compound, DYDX, and Fulcrum. It looks for what is the highest yielding opportunity among that set, and it automatically moves your assets from one to another. So, you know, broadly, you can think about it as just allocating your assets in a smart fashion over time. So I have a, I mean, it kind of touches on what you were saying before around, you know, this all kind of looks very similar, right? Staking and, and DeFi. But one thing that seems to be clearly different in my head is that the risks involved are quite different in the sense that in the kind of DeFi model, you're talking about the price risk of the collateral asset you know, the collateral requirements of the system, et cetera. Whereas like when you're staking, you're kind of doing a service and you're getting paid for that service. And if you don't do that reliably, you might lose money, right? So the dynamics there are a little different, but even within Ray and the DeFi space, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, in an efficient market, all of these yields should basically be any difference in the yield should be a function of risk or the collateral requirements sure. of the underlying pool or you know, the liquidity terms of, of lending into this, you know, how long is it locked up for? Is it block by block or is it like the die savings rate where it's 21 days or whatever it is? And so in an efficient market, the different rates should basically be a function of risk and liquidity. And therefore, if the product just targets the highest yield, really what it's targeting is the highest risk or the the least liquid opportunity, right? So how do you kind of think about that given kind of the risk properties can also move around a lot. You know, if you take something like compound, the gross collateral of the system can move around uh, as a percentage of how much has been borrowed. If you think about like from like a margining perspective, all that stuff's going to be moving around. Yeah. So how do, how do you kind of think about adjusting the allocations for risk or whether that's going to be necessary? Um, oh, I, I think, yeah. I think your point's spot on and whether it's necessary with the current product set, it's definitely going to be necessary as it evolves. I mean, the, the vision behind Ray is the same as, as candidly, the vision around staked, which is how do I get to look at what are all the yield generating opportunities that I might be able to take advantage of, mm. allow an investor to 
customize which ones are appropriate, be as, as clear about what are the risks involved, allow them to potentially price it as effectively as possible. I mean, those are, when we started the conversation, we talked about spreads. And so ultimately, if you think about how should I evaluate my staking versus lending, and I think there's a there's a difference there, I might say, I'm willing to put it in with a hundred basis point spread, for example. Yeah. And so I think you could you could easily see Ray evolving to support more sophisticated pricing on things like that, allowing governance to determine, as in kind of the maker risk models, allowing governments to decide how much risk is actually associated with different types of activities, mm-hmm. and then and then allowing them to take advantage of that. Because I. Intrinsically, it feels like the the long term value proposition, as you said, like might be more around configuring the user's requirements around risk so they capital flows to the appropriate opportunities that they're kind of comfortable with, right? I think that's absolutely right. And so the you know the the core of Ray is really effectively a two token model yeah. where you you can invest uh, or you can deposit assets into the Ray smart contract, and then you've got a another set of of people who are effectively looking at, at the governance of the network itself and, and answering questions about, should we be putting spreads as part of this? Should I, as an individual, be able to customize those things? And we want to reward people both for introducing other opportunities into there, as well as extending into things like providing more intelligence at the, at the allocation level. What are the other opportunities that you're seeing in DeFi that look something like uh, Ray at the moment that you could add to Ray? Sure. So staking is obviously on our horizon, but probably further out. In the near term, the liquidation tools we think are pretty interesting. So providing a liquidation service for something like DYDX or Compound where you're monitoring the price of collateral and is something collateralized is a natural combination of you need technology that's up 100% of the time and there's an opportunity to the extent you have liquidity available to earn a yield on it. And so we think that fits in pretty nicely. Yeah, let's dive a little bit deeper into the liquidation opportunities. From what I understand, collateral that's underwater or loans that are underwater enter into some sort of state where you can bid on them. And I believe it's all fixed at the moment, uh, like the discount that you can buy uh, those opportunities at. Isn't that just a pure latency game? For, so the, like the first... So I think it's it's a yes. How do you get transactions? How do you process transactions? It is worth noting that someone who is actually assembling the blocks is in a relatively privileged position as it relates to those opportunities. I think separately, I think those systems are going to evolve, right? I mean, why should you set a 5% liquidity discount? What you should set is... What's the market rate? And that's effectively going to be driven by what would it cost me to borrow the asset and then put a risk premium against it to perform that liquidation? And so I think, you know, in that context, there's a little bit more intelligence around how you do pricing so that you can perform the transaction. But I think I think that's the natural evolution of it, right? It should be an auction for who's willing to accept the smallest discount on the on the price so that the the penalty for under collateralization is minimized. Mm-hmm. And, and the opportunities in DeFi for, for liquidation seem to be growing. Uh, now you have Compound, you have uh, Maker CDPs, of course, been around for a while. Now set rebalances and then TBTC is going to be a thing and there's going to be D-dex. opportunities. D-dex. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, 
there are new DeFi specific crypto funds that are popping up that are also competing for these opportunities in a long enough time spectrum. Don't you think that these opportunities are going to effectively diminish? And uh, if you're going to do this in an automatic fashion, how would you procure the liquidity and, uh, you know, on the other end to make yourself competitive and, and actually make money on this? So we don't procure liquidity. And, and so it's, a, it's an important distinction about we staked developed the initial version of Ray as an open source smart contract on the blockchain. And so when you deposit assets into Ray, you are effectively, but, but not technically, pooling your assets with other investors who are going to get the advantages of that same scale. And so what you have is a decentralized pool of liquidity that is effectively managed by that smart contract. So as that achieves results, and by the way, we've we've proven out, I mean, I don't know what you guys may have seen on Twitter, but people put the same amount of money into Ray, into Compound, into DYDX, into Fulcrum, and into a competitive product. And they monitored how it did over 30 days and we materially outperformed anybody else in competitive that Competitive rebalancing product. Correct. Yeah. Yes. It's, yeah. a, it's another yeah. competitive rebalancing product. And so, you know, that should be an attractor for assets. And it was an attractor for assets in that you announced that. And, and the guy announced it. He was totally independent, announced it on Twitter. And when we got more assets deposited into that pool. So I think as that pool gets bigger, it then is better able to take advantage of opportunities. It's also better able to service new markets because if you have uh, effectively a budget that people can justify if i write a smart contract mm. and and ray gets integrated with that smart contract you become the most attractive place for integrations and and that has some some real kind of returns on it because you get more people writing smart contracts that take advantage of of yield opportunities which leads to a broader set of decisions it can make and a higher yield, which then drives more, more capital into the liquidity pool. So I have a few questions that are sort of connected in a way. So anybody can come in. It's all smart contract based, right? Correct. Anybody yep. can come in with no KYC and deposit funds. Is that correct? So the smart contract itself yeah. is open on the Ethereum blockchain. And to the extent that you've done KYC or you have assets on Ethereum, you can deposit directly into the Ray contract. That's correct. And so does that mean that if you were to do a liquidation, purchase some ETH from a CDP or whatever it is, does that mean you are only really capable of selling those assets on a DEX rather than a centralized exchange in which you guys own the account? Yeah, this is sort of what I was getting at. But uh, Procuring did, liquidity, did it, yeah. you meant like selling the assets that you're buying, right? Th that's right. Uh, yeah. How would you hedge properly? Yeah. So the answer is there's complexity under the hood there that mm. I think as we, you know, we are up and running with a set of products. As we explore things like that, we spend time with our lawyers to figure out, okay, is it okay? Yeah. Um, I, I don't buy into the idea that the attraction of DeFi is, or, or I'm not building a business that believes that like it should be a KYC AML free kind of universe. Yep. I am interested in bridging people who can earn a yield through programmable money and open finance, I like as a, as a better term. So I think we will do KYC AML. Yeah. 
we will ensure that there are pools of liquidity, which tend to be the larger pools of liquidity, that can take advantage of these programmable opportunities. And that might mean that Ray, as an option, unless you, you perform KYC and you get a whitelisted address, you may not be able to partake in which all your the customers would probably prefer, right? Because they're pooling our, capital, might feel a bit icky not knowing who else is in your. Well, you don't pool. I mean, the nice thing about smart contracts is you don't actually pool the capital. It looks like a pool and it operates like a pool, but it's not mixed. And so there isn't this same kind of concept, which is if I send my assets to some funky bank, well, now that that might be dirty money because it got mingled with everybody else's. That doesn't happen with a smart contract and with Ray. So that it is an important distinction, but you know, we generally are operating with people who are interested in deploying a lot of money yeah. and are, are looking at this as, as it's got to be a, a white lit environment. And it sounds like what you're saying basically is that you would rather KYC people and use centralized liquidity to get the best returns out of these opportunities. Yes. I mean, we're going to, in addition to a lot of the stuff we've talked about, mm. we're creating SPVs that will bridge some of the centralized lending services. So you can elect if, if, I want to go through KYC and I'm willing to take counterparty risk with someone like a Genesis Capital. Yeah. How do I partake in things like that? And they're not going to touch some random pool of liquidity that hasn't been KYC'd, uh, but they might and, and will in, in a better environment. So that was a, the collateralized off-chain lending that I saw that's in right. the UI. So that's, yeah. that's through you know, the, the folks who do this in the off-chain business, which is a much larger set of things. And, and, and that's, you know, I think bridging those two things is part of what we're putting a lot of, of rails in place to do. Super interesting. And is that, um, there was also some uh, allusion to maybe opening up the process of adding new lending pools or something like that. Like uh, there's some inference to like an open, more open standard or something with Ray. De um, definitely. Yeah. We, um, you know, we want this not to be a staked product. Mm -hmm. We want it to be an open standard so that customers we work with can participate in it. We we kicked a lot of that off, but we're going to open it up so it's open for governance and you can make a bunch of decisions around how those things get added, including, you know, a competitive staking offering or things like that that may compete with staked as a business, but may if it generates a higher yield for customers, we think that's attractive to them. So what does it look and feel like to bake in the staking into the, the Ray product? Because, you know, obviously there's going to be a whole bunch of different networks where if you own this particular asset, you can stake, right? So does that mean that you would be trading in and out of assets to then stake on the highest yield network? So generally, that's not a place we're going to yet. Yeah. I think the interesting place you can do that is the US dollar stable coins, which, which look semi-fungible and you might be willing to borrow US dollars to put it into a stable coin. So I think, I think the place it starts with staking is simply saying, I'm naturally long ETH and I simply want to make a decision about should I stake this or should I lend it out on compound or should I take advantage of a variety of liquidator type opportunities. Let's talk a little bit about pooling liquidity and the various markets that you can siphon that liquidity into and the market impact that you have when you enter in a new market. So for example, your algorithm behind Ray might take the pool of capital and deposit it all into compound, but suddenly you realize that the market impact that you had on the interest rates on compound made that an unfavorable decision. How do you think before the fact about that decision making? 
Sure. So we have, there are models behind the scenes. And so all of the decisioning is effectively an oracle, right? And so it is looking at the combination of what are current rates, but also doing the math behind how do I optimally allocate given that if you put money in, it's going to move. And, and so that's just an optimization problem, which is kind of nice because there's pretty established software that can help you figure that out. Assuming you have a reasonable estimate of what happens if I move a million dollars into compound or, or vice versa. And so we've built that out so that it runs and are going to give that to a bunch of people who can all run the same thing and confirm that in fact, number one, it works in that it delivers the optimal solution. And number two, look for how do I improve this so that this one pool always has in addition to uh, smart allocation, it's constantly getting better about decisioning like that. So you guys taking any fees through this whole thing? So we're generally not taking fees. Yeah. The general token model is we set a benchmark rate, which we kind of think of like a risk-free rate, and the token pays to a, a secondary pool uh, 20% of everything above that benchmark rate. Long story being over time, yes, there is a fee model built in that goes to the secondary token that incentivizes the people who put capital in and incentivizes people who are participating to improve the Ray decisioning. Why don't, why don't we take a step back and just talk about the token model in general? Because I think we skipped over that, right? Yeah, uh, Ray is supposed to be uh, ERC721. That's uh, right. And that's the primary token you're talking about? The, so that's, that's where you deposit assets into. Okay. And yeah. then the set of smart contracts takes effectively alpha, is what we think of it as, what's yep. the generated above that rate, and puts it into a pool for people who have deposited assets into Ray and people who are improving the contract. And so effectively an author's pool of sorts. And that's that's what I'm talking about. It's probably less developed. I mean, I'm on the spectrum of uh, developing a decentralized product, there are probably two approaches you can take. Number one is you have a, a semi-centralized version that you decentralize over time. Number two is you sort of build an auger where you put everything out there, kind of born Athenian. Mm-hmm. And, and we definitely took the the former approach and are in the process of steadily adding all that administrative stuff to the community itself. And so do, do you have like a defined share of that alpha at the moment? Or are you going to yes, like tokenize that? Well, that's a, yes, so that's a protocol level okay. decision that was set initially at yeah. 20%. And, and if the market says via governance that should be 10%, that can happen. 20% of the alpha. 20% of the alpha. Okay. So everything I can earn above a benchmark rate. And do you guys define that benchmark rate via some kind of formula that will yeah, constantly yes. update? So, I yeah. mean, the, the formula is compound, which we think is, okay. and, and generally right. the approach we're always going to take is going to be what's the most liquid naive strategy I can take to mm. allocate my funds. I think that evolves from compound to either the die savings rate or the staking yield. Yeah. But you know that's going to be a decision for governance over time as, as the market kind of answers that question. So uh, looking kind of five or six years down the track uh, where maybe you keep on going down the decentralization path, what will it look like ideally uh, are they going to be like governance tokens and voting rights and, you know, tradable assets that collect the alpha in this system? And like, what what do you kind of see as like the vision around that sort of thing? So the vision we're building towards is 
a spreadsheet I would prepare every day on the debt derivatives trading floor, which was the spreads to whatever benchmark rate there was that the traders were willing to pay dumped into a smart contract. And so they all had a list of 10 to 100 things they were willing to buy and to market make against in a fixed income world. Our belief is that's going to be in smart contracts. And so you will have a terminal within Ray mm -hmm. that you might be able to set a set of spreads against to take advantage of the various yielding opportunities. Uh, and that will be hopefully available in a lot of different places where you can take advantage of DeFi more broadly. Interesting. Interesting. And is that, um, you know, obviously your customer profile now is basically funds and whales and whatnot, right? But this product feels like something that could be very easily integrated into a whole bunch of different front ends. There's possible distribution play into wallets or whatever, even exchanges, right? Is that something that you guys are looking to That's do? That's 100% what we want to do. Yeah. I, think the, I think ultimately where crypto lives, everyone's got a really wide variety of decisions to make there. Some people are going to put it with a third-party custodian. Some leave it on an exchange. Others, you know, it's not your keys. It's not your crypto, right? And we have built a solution that's entirely orthogonal to that decision. You just decide what you want to decide is how do I earn the highest yield on my crypto irrespective of where it's sitting? And that's the stuff we're building towards. Yeah, I, I think Cole uh, shot me over some of your latest developer documentation. Uh, what do you envision other than just simply white labeling staked developers build uh, with, with the latest tech? I think what's cool is you you actually start to put developer docs to other people and they come back to you with with pretty neat ideas. So uh, I think you know the, the most natural is there's a slew of wallets and custodians and exchanges that are all figuring out how do I generate yield for my customers. And this is a natural drop-in that delivers the highest yield to customers. Beyond that, you know, people look at yields in the same way that that they were looking at interest rates 20, 50, 70 years ago in that you then can combine them in lots of interesting ways. And so you can combine that with specific positions that you might take relative to forwards or spot prices today and actually construct a, a very specific uh, opportunity that might have an arbitrage, arbitrage associated with, like a contango type situation, or you know, simply build that into other interfaces that, that people are doing to show kind of new DeFi functionality. What are like the highest asked for feature requests from your customers regarding staked? It generally just comes down to what's in my portfolio and make sure that if that's a stakeable asset that launches or it's a yield generating opportunity that I've invested in, right? I mean, our principal customer is also happens to be pretty actively investing across both liquid and illiquid opportunities in crypto. And so what we see is a lot of, you know, I have X, Y, and Z that you should be supporting. And that includes initially, it was really all the proof of stake assets that drove our roadmap. It's now evolving where they're saying, here are a couple interesting opportunities that we're looking at. Yeah, that, that was my roundabout way of trying to broach fixed interest rates. And if that's something that customers frequently ask for, I know it, when we talk to the various savings accounts that are built on top of Compound that are on-ramping through Wire, that's something that those retail-oriented customers frequently ask for. I'm sure your institutional-based customers don't worry about that as much. 
Does that ever pop up in conversation? Just oh, more sure, like a fixed it pops rate? up. I mean, yeah. I think I think specifically, if you're a lender or, or if you're a borrower who wants to shorten asset, because I, I, you know, a lot of cases this is speculative borrowing is is on chain. It's better to know that I have a fixed payments over time uh, to set that up. And so I think you, when you interface with some of the off-chain folks who do this, they want to know that the asset's not going to be yanked out from under them. They do not want, you know, I, I borrowed some assets from Ray and it got yanked out from under me a minute later because Compound's rate updated. So I think I think seeing the evolution into more fixed rate models is natural. It fits really well with a lot of what makes the fixed income market so big overall and that there are a lot of companies that would love to know a kind of fixed rate of schedule at which they can earn yield because they can then match it to pension obligations, insurance obligations, all the things that make fixed income really big. All that's pretty early. Candidly, our customers aren't necessarily saying, get me to a fixed versus a float because they're comfortable with the idea that it floats around a little bit right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a natural progression of things, like you said. I think we'll see it uh, in the market sometime soon. There's so many teams that are trying to solve that problem uh, by uh, bringing some sort of fixed and float interest rate swap to market. It'll be exciting. Yeah, those are uh, generally all the questions on my end. I, I've got a really? couple more. Just like from you know, obviously you guys are going to be uh, assuming it doesn't become too decentralized, right? You're going to have a lot of capital, arguably a lot of influence. Like, what do you think about your role? I mean, in a way, you're a kind of a black box, but you also might have a lot of influence on things like your role in governance, in helping, you know, these protocols, whatever, define their own risk properties and stuff like that. We actively want to get out of the black box business and into the run this with a group of interested folks who will help us do it. I think sometimes you have to push the rock way up the hill before it gets on the other side and starts rolling down. But I think with this product, we're going to get to that point where others will engage. I'd love to see others who are a lot smarter than me about what's an appropriate risk profile setting those things up rather than having stake involved at all. Mm. And is that, um, you know, from from the, when you're just thinking about staking specifically, right? Do you guys actually have, I guess because you're being delegated to the actual voting power for any on-chain governance is held by the delegator, right? Not you guys. Yeah, it depends. We generally, our relationship with customers is that we're a technical pass-through yeah. and they maintain their role in governance. And so we okay. provide some tools so they can do that. That's always going to be the way we approach this. We are not interested in taking an active role unless we're we're asked to do so. And, and we do advise on technical things. Right. Okay. And is that, what do you think about smart contract insurance? Like, you know, Ray's going to be smart contract. Well, it is smart contract based. Um, you've got things like Nexus Mutual. What's kind of your view on that and whether that's a worthwhile thing to, to bake into something like that? I love it. I yeah. think, you know, the, the thing that attracts me to smart contracts is the bigger they get, the more eyes you have on it and the more secure they get over time versus an exchange where the bigger it gets, the more it's a honeypot for getting hacked. And so, you know, the exchange and custody business has evolved to effectively require insurance because the risk is so high. And so I think it's got to naturally happen on smart contract side as well. And do you think that that's something that can be effectively priced? 
I think that's a really good question. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a, yeah. you know, the problem with so much of, of smart contracts has been when it goes bad, it goes so bad mm. that, you know, the that's going to scare insurance companies a lot. And that's that's why you don't have more traditional coverage and you've got folks like Nexus Mutual doing it. But I think, yeah, I, I think you can get comfortable. I would love to see some of these auditors who are basically making their money saying this is a secure contract to actually come in and, and put some money behind that process. But I think they're they're not quite there yet. Yeah. I guess for from a customer point of view, it's just like you would just make it a checkbox, right? Like yeah, it, it'll be I mean, and yeah. as soon as, as Nexus Mutual can enable us to do that in an API driven fashion, yeah. it'll be a checkbox. So you can just get coverage in a way that's super easy. Have you guys considered building the the counter product, a borrow like most efficient borrowing product? We didn't. We initially said we're just kind of yield generation yeah. for holders of crypto. Uh, the more we've talked to people, particularly on the uh, stablecoin side of things, the more demand we've heard for it. So I don't know. I don't know that that's something we would necessarily get into. But I've heard a lot more ask for it than I anticipated. Interesting. And is there something uh, areas of yield generation outside of staking and you know these these on chain lending products that? Uh, maybe that you've just seen at a conceptual level that haven't actually been implemented anywhere yet. But is there anything you see as poss possibly the next big thing in this passive income space? I think, you know, when you lock up assets, particularly when it's got some sort of fixed time frame around it, you then create a market for it, what do I do if I want to get out of that asset mm -hmm. quickly? And so I think, you know, we think about early exit opportunities as kind of interesting. If you have to stake ETH and lock it up for four months, which currently it's more a dynamic model, but anything you have to, to lock up for any period of time, providing an early exit opportunity is just kind of a new flavor of lending and borrowing that, that will generate yield on those things. Right. So when you think about different protocol crypto economics, right, and what you would like to be seeing as a validator trying to make money processing blocks... You know, obviously there are some coins out there that have very high inflation, uh, whether it's something like LivePeer or maybe Decred, where others that have much lower inflation. Generally speaking, coins with higher inflation tend to have poor price performance. I think that's something that has been relatively proven at this point. From like a margins perspective, would you rather a high inflation coin that you just sell as soon as you get it, or would you rather be kind of holding an asset and watching it go up? Or what do you prefer as a validator when looking at that kind of right. dynamic? So we are, we generally try to be agnostic to what do people hold, right? We clearly, because we get paid a percentage of the rewards, we make more on a percentage basis for things that have very high inflation. Something like LivePeer that you reference has 150% annualized inflation or annualized yield. Uh, it only has a 70% annualized inflation rate. So you're only. actually you're actually <laughs> generating a really yeah. high yield. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a high number, but it's just it's yeah, just numbers, right? Yep. And so I think there's actually a number of investors who basically have cottoned on to that fact that there's a real yield being generated there. There are others where it's a negative real yield and there's a a high inflation rate that may be going to a founder's award or things like that where yeah, I, I think you're going to see 
you may be generating like the, the number basically. is going up. Yeah, yeah, we don't we don't support Zcash right now, but Zcash is a great example where yeah. the number may be going up, but your proportionate ownership of the network is going down. Mm. I don't think that's a long term strategy for success. And most of the investors we work with are not engaged in that type of thing. They are typically long term holders of an asset and they believe that the price appreciation is going to be there. And then the staking yield simply becomes a kicker. Or, you know, if I own 100, yes, I'd, of course, I'd prefer to earn 110 at the end of next year. Yeah. Because one of the dynamics that I kind of was questioning is like, if there's constant, if you have effectively fixed costs to provide the service, right, and the price of a token is constantly falling, even if the inflation, if, you know, if the inflation rate stays the same, does that just mean that it falls to a point where you can't make money or the network as a whole sure. becomes unprofitable? Sure. By the way, one of the dynamics I don't think many people understand is is that, you know, if you cannot pay validators to yeah. keep the lights on, you no longer have a secure proof of stake network. And, and so who are the sinners today in that regard? Well, I, I rather than sort of pointing at, at specific areas where I wouldn't feel as secure about my money, I, I would just say that generally is associated with market cap because if you have a small market cap, and you need a lot of validators in the system, mm. that generally is is challenging because you, you're going to then need to pay a very high yield to find people. And, and you know, to your point, if you're constantly inflating, you may have an issue with the price of it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Last question from me would be, out of all the different networks and opportunities that you support, which one has the highest real yield and is most accessible to you know the hobbyist uh, that could set up a node in, in his house or something like that? Wants him to crush those margins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that generally there is a pretty a market-driven reaction between you know the things that are... It's not only necessarily setting up a node, you also have to attract enough capital so that in the case where there's a fixed number of validators allowed in the system, you have enough to actually participate. So I think actually recruiting the capital in a lot of cases becomes the big issue to actually mm. outperforming your ability to kind of set up a node and run it. If I were if I were thinking about, do I want to run a node as a hobbyist? I would probably get involved with ETH too, because I think it's it's got the most potential for very high market cap where I think it's it's got enough teams working on clients that you should be able to run a supported node relatively easily. And so you guys would see, I guess, all of the network activity. You get to see kind of what's happening where. Are there particular networks where you think, oh, look, there's stuff going on here that's pretty interesting that you don't see talked about much? I think people have lost sight of some of the high potential around Cosmos and Polkadot to allow for interchain activity mm. In networks, and, and when I think about yield generating opportunities, and moving chain to chain becomes actually really interesting and important because you don't necessarily want to just do Ray in an, in an Ethereum environment. You want to take any crypto asset that you hold and always earn the highest yield on it. And I get excited when I see Cosmos is actually moving a test net forward for their IBC setup, which allows for interbroad blockchain communications. I think the second one I mentioned is Keep and its TBTC stuff I think is is really interesting as well for exactly the same reasons. You can now get Bitcoin to earn interest in Compound and, and things like that are, are, I think are super cool. Totally agree. 
Yeah, 2020 should hopefully be the year we see all of that come and become a big thing. I, I think Polkadot also launched uh, some sort of uh, testnet. Polkadot's uh, Kus- Kusama testnet Kusama, is is actually just live, going live right now and, and moving from a proof of authority network where all the nodes are run by the foundation to those run by validators. And we just launched our services there. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. Very cool. Uh, so last, very easy question, uh, Tim, where can people get in touch with you and learn more about Staked? Sure. We are at staked.us and it's staked underscore US on Twitter. Those are, those are probably the two easiest places and I'm pretty easy to reach. Very good. Thanks so much for joining, Tim. Thank you guys for Thank having you. me. Thanks for joining today. To learn more about Staked, check out the show notes, including your podcast and remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.